Okay, public service announcement. Just everybody take a deep breath and relax. It's gonna be okay. Hey, uh, almost 10 years ago, uh, believe it or not, uh, we did a series here at the Creek called Post-Christian. Some of you may have been here for it, others, uh, you, hadn't, you hadn't arrived at the Creek yet, but we did a series called Post-Christian, and at the time, I remember I got up on the first Sunday of the series, and I looked at our church, and I said, I think this may be one of the most important series uh, that we have ever done up until that moment. Uh, so here we are nearly 10 years later, and I think that it still just might be some of the most important content that we've covered in our church because it continues to be some of the most formative content that we have talked about in our church as it relates to our philosophy and our approach to ministry uh, as a church. Uh, back then, uh, nearly 10 years ago, I talked about how America was itching towards becoming a post-Christian nation. Uh, that is, if we were ever a Christian nation to begin with, which is debatable, and it really uh, has to do a lot with what you mean by Christian nation. Now, there's no doubt, you know, if anybody takes a look at American history and if anybody studies the Founding Fathers, there's no doubt that our national conscience was largely formed by Judeo-Christian ideals and values. And, and though that was partially true, it was not entirely true because we know a little bit of our own history and we know a little bit of the personal histories of the founding fathers, but, but that's really kind of irrelevant to the larger debate. Our national conscience was informed uh, by ideals and values that found their root and their origin and their foundation in the Judeo-Christian ethic and faith. Uh, but the reality is that was an evolving thing. And, and somewhere, you know, it's debatable among historians, but, you know, some would say the 1950s, some would go back to the 40s or the 20s or the early 1900s or the late 1800s. It really doesn't matter. But if that was once true, it, it certainly isn't true anymore. And it wasn't true when we did this series 10 years ago. Matter of fact, 10 years ago, I made this statement uh, on the first week of the series. I said there is a tsunami-like culture shift about to take place over the next 10 to 20 years. Uh, and when you fast forward from the moment that that was said, and you fast forward, you know, 10 years or so after that to 2023, uh, I think that any novice look at what's happened in the country and what's happened in the West, uh, what's happened, you know, all around us, it has been a tsunami-like culture shift. Uh, and it's turned out to be absolutely true, not because I'm a prophet, because I'm certainly not a prophet, uh, but because anybody who was paying attention, anybody who was watching, anybody who was listening could see it coming. And, and the tsunami came, and there has been a culture shift that has been taking place over the last 10 years. Uh, things are not like they were 10 years ago, and things are certainly not like they were 20 years ago, and it's not like it was 50 years ago. But even since the post-Christian series, the steady departure of adults and young adults and even teenagers from both the church and from faith, it's only accelerated in the last 10 years. And by all measurable statistics, by any measurable statistics, Christianity in the United States, and I think a person could even say Christianity in the West at large, but Christianity within the United States is at best in crisis, and at worst, it's in free fall. Uh, so much so, and I, I want to say this uh, before I go further, that's not, that's not a statement of pessimism or optimism or neutrality. That's just a statement about what is. And, and, and it's a statement about what we can track and what we can measure. And so Christianity is either in crisis or it's in free fall, but whatever you want to label it and 
however how you want to think about it, uh, we know that you can track this thing out and based on where we are and how things have been and, and the number of departures and declining attendance and declining you know, involvement in Christian faith all across the country, that by the year 2070, uh, not all of us will see 2070, some of us will, many of our children and grandchildren will, but by the year 2070, uh, the predominant thinking is that only about three out of every 10 people in the United States of America will claim affiliation to anything Christian. So that means that seven out of 10 people, perhaps by the time we get to the year 2070, that seven out of 10 will claim no affiliation, no connection, no membership to anything of the Christian faith. Only three out of 10. And if we think there has been a tsunami-like culture shift in the last 10 years, or the last 20 years, or the last 40 years, just imagine what it may look like over the next 30 years, or 40 years, or 50 years. That's not pessimism. I'm not a pessimist. I'm a, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. I can see the silver lining in almost any cloud. I'm not making a statement of pessimism or negativity or trying to fear monger or anything like that. I'm just saying, hey, here's where we are, and, and these are the facts as we can understand them the best we can. That by 2070, only three out of 10 people that you're going to meet, or only three out of 10 people that will live in the country will say, hey, I'm, I'm a Christian. And, and that seems consequential. And it seems like it should cause us to ask some questions. Uh, we should be thoughtful enough to, to think about this for just a moment and just not let it go by. It causes me to ask some questions about, well, what happened? What happened? Uh, what is happening? And how did we get here? How did we get to this moment in time? How did we get to this place? How did we get here and things look the way they look into the near future? How did we get here? And then the question that really, uh, really kind of inspires me, bothers me, uh, I like to think about it quite a bit. It's, it's the question of how do we continue somehow? Not as Americans and not as Westerners, but, but really as people who claim to follow Jesus and as the church at large. If I could speak for all of us for just a moment, I don't pretend that I have the right nor the authority to, but let's just imagine that I could just speak for you know, Christians all across the country. I would be asking, how do we continue to somehow make things worse? If we make things worse. And are we the ones that seemingly are contributing to the departure of faith? Uh, what is it that brought us here? Is it someone else's fault? Is it our fault? Do we play any role in it? Do we have any responsibility in it? You know, some Christians, and maybe it's you, uh, but some Christians, uh, you've perhaps heard them, some Christians like to point to the problem, you know, starting in 1962 with the Supreme Court decision to take, you know, prayer out of public school. And a lot of people I've heard, they will point to that and they will say, this is the beginning of America's moral and cultural woes that then in turn led to the 63 decision that stopped school-supported Bible reading, you know, or Bible study in, in, the, in the public school system. And then they would say that then, like a domino, led to the sexual revolution of the 60s, which led to the Ten Commandments being removed from schools. And then there was Roe v. Wade in those days that made abortion legal. And then came the drugs. And then came school shootings. And then we've got the redefining of things, you know, in our culture, like marriage, uh, the redefining of things like gender, the redefining of things like morality, and the debate around who gets to define what marriage is, who gets to define what gender is, who gets to define 
define what morality is and where does that right derive from? Where does that authority come from? And a lot of the Christians that go that persuasion will say it's because God got kicked out of the schools and it's because God got kicked out of the public square and that's why we are where we are. And I understand that point of view, but I would say, I would say I disagree. I disagree with that point of view. Matter of fact, I would go a little bit further and I would say something almost entirely different. Uh, and again, I may not have a job in three weeks, so I hope any of you that are looking to hire, I'll send you a resume. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna dissent from the opinion because I think that God was kicked out of most churches across America long before he wasn't welcome in the public schools and long before he wasn't welcome in the public square, if we want to even use that language, because God's omnipresent and you can't kick God out of anything. Uh, and, and so there's a whole you know, line of thought we could chase there, but I'm not going to. Long before, in my opinion, long before God had disappeared from the public square, he had disappeared in the private conscience of too many Christians. He had disappeared in the consciousness of, of most churches across America from mainline Protestantism to evangelicals, whoever you want to name. And so if this is true, and I think it is, because what was happening publicly through politics and culture and society, you know, throughout the 60s and the 70s, into the 80s and up until the present day, was really that was something that had been happening for a long while privately. It was something that was happening behind the closed doors of homes and behind the doors of churches. It was something that was happening in the minds of people who claimed to follow Jesus and in the hearts of people who claimed to follow Jesus. It was something that was happening personally and privately amongst Christians before it spilt out and before it manifested itself in a public way in our culture, in a public way through politics or you know, ever how you want to think of it. And so if this is true, and I think it is, and if you think something else, you know, like I've said before, you have the right to be wrong, and you are. And, and I'm telling you, if this is true, and I think it is, it may be way past high time for American Christians, for American Christians to take their part of the responsibility and our responsibility, you know, in the role that we have played that has brought us to this moment in time with things being the way they are. It, it may be way past high time for us to take some responsibilities for why most of our churches across America are empty and why thousands of churches will close every single year. And while there is a general precipitous decline of church in America, both in attendance and engagement, and in the number of people who claim affiliation with Christianity, maybe Maybe just maybe we should claim some responsibility in that. If we have responsibility in that, you may not think we do. Uh, you may be able to blame somebody else for it. But it may be partly our fault, and it may be time for us to take responsibility not only for that, but also our impotent influence in the culture. Where not only, you know, for years and years and years, we've tried to handle, you know, talk about right things, but we did it in wrong ways. So instead of building bridges, we built barriers. And, and instead of, you know, winning friends, we created enemies. Uh, all of a sudden now, you know, we are left impotent in influence. It, it, it's as if we're not salt and we're not light and, and we're not the aroma of life that Paul talked about to the church living in Corinth. It, it, it's, it's almost as if we are isolating ourselves further away away from our mission, further away from our calling, all because there's this us versus them mentality that has developed within the political system of the United States, which is now filtered into the churches within the United States, and now our influence has seemingly shrunk. We're impotent in really any kind of voice of salt or light or life in the greater culture at large, uh, and for lots of reasons that we could talk about, but I'm not going to go into those. And maybe we should take some of the responsibility for the mass departure of 
of faith among teenagers and young adults and adults that's been taking place around us for decades that doesn't seem to be getting any better. Maybe it is time for us to assume responsibility for that, or at least partly uh, assume responsibility for that. If we share it with someone else, at least we ought to own it on our side. And if it's entirely our fault, then we should entirely own it. But either way, no matter what you think about it or what I think about it, I think we can all agree that it's time for the church, uh, our church, this church. I think it's high time for every church to begin to regroup and rethink. Regroup and rethink, because oftentimes as churches, we are not very good at regrouping, we're not very good at rethinking things. Uh, we get into groups, we think about something, we think about it one way, and we think about it you know, for the rest of our lives just that way. But maybe it's time to regroup, maybe it's time to rethink and reconsider what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to look like a follower of Jesus in our current culture. Maybe it's time to regroup and rethink as individuals who claim to be followers of Jesus. What does that mean? What does it really mean? What are the responsibilities that are attached to being a follower of Jesus? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus in the culture that we live in? What does it sound like to be a follower of Jesus in my workplace? What does it look like and sound like to be a follower of Jesus who's a mom or a dad or a son or a daughter or a student or a young you know, professional or a business owner or an employee? What does it look like to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus and engage within the political system of the Republic, you know, the Democratic Republic that we live in here in America? What, what does that look like? Maybe it's time to regroup and rethink and reconsider Consider that. Maybe we need to think about what does it look like today to look like a follower of Jesus. And as we kick off this series uh, that we're going to talk about for the next few weeks, I think it's worthwhile, you know, to remind ourselves that the first Christians, the first generation of Christians, generation 1.0, the very first Christians were sent out into a world that had no absolute sense of right or wrong. Uh, there was no transcendent morality for the cultures at large. Uh, every single ethnicity and religion and culture seemingly had their own sense of what was right and what was wrong and what was taboo and what wasn't. Uh, one group would believe this, another group would believe that, but that there was no unifying sense of an absolute universal right or wrong that was connected to a transcendent God, a transcendent being who was the moral authority for all of us moral human creatures. Uh, everybody in the pagan world, they just kind of made it up. It changed by culture. It evolved over time. And, and there were lots of factors that went into it. But when the first Christians went out into the world, there was no absolute sense. There was no true north. There, there was no transcendent anchor to say, this is right, this is wrong, and this is why. Um, sure, it existed among the Jewish people. You know, they had the law of God. But I'm talking among the pagans. That was just all kind of up for grabs. When the first Christians were sent out, they were sent out into a culture that had no such thing as an inherent value of life. Uh, in the cultures at large, there was no such thing as the sanctity of life, which we're gonna talk about in, in a few weeks. You know, there, there was no such thing as the sanctity of life. There, there was no inherent value of life. Some lives mattered, some lives mattered less, and some lives mattered not at all. And that was the world that the first Christians were sent out into. Uh, they were sent out into a world where ethics and morality were relative. 
Uh, like I said, to your culture, to your tribe, to your per- religious persuasion. And so your ethics didn't have to be my ethics and you know my ethics didn't have to be your ethics. And as long as our ethics didn't intersect and cause problems for each other, we could exist. But when your group and my group's you know, morality and ethics begin to cross with each other, you know, then I, you know, we, may, we may fight with each other and we may hate each other. Uh, we may talk about each other, whatever it is, but there, it was all just relative. Um, when the first Christians went out, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there was no such thing as Christian values. When the first Christians went out, there was no such thing as Christian values that were connected to things like marriage or family or the dignity and the value of every life. Uh, think about it. If you're a follower of Jesus, I'm going to assume some things for just a moment. And if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, I, I will assume that you have a framework of belief, a framework through which you see the world, things that you believe are right, things that you believe are wrong. Many of those things are so natural to you at this point. It, it, it's difficult for you to even understand how people can't see the world the way that you see it. And you stopped thinking long ago about why you see the world the way you see it. But all of the ethics and values and framework for morality that many of us have as followers of Jesus, once upon a time, those things were not existent at all. Not existent at all. There was a whole entire world that was void of so many of the values and so many of the ethics and ideals that are rooted within Christianity and flows out of the following, you know, the teaching of Jesus. And so a lot of us, we just take a lot of that for granted because it's just what we think, it's what we were told, it's what we read, God said it, so that settled it and I believe it. But we forget that once upon a time, there was a world out there. There was a world out there that didn't have any of those ideals or any of those values or any of those ethics. And the first Christians went out into a world that had none of that. And they began to cultivate that. Uh, They stepped into a world where men could own women and children. You could just not own a woman, but you could own two women or three women or four women or five women, ever how many women you could afford and nobody would think anything about it. Your children were your property, your enemy. If you were stronger and richer than your enemy, you could own your enemy. You could own a couple of your enemies. You could own all of your enemies. And nobody had a moral qualm about it because that world didn't exist yet. Those values and those ethics didn't exist yet. The first Christians, that's the world they stepped into. And that's the world they changed. That's the world that it said that they turned upside down. It wasn't easy, and it didn't happen overnight. Matter of fact, Jesus was very honest with them. Jesus told his first followers, he said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Like sheep among the wolves. Now, when it comes to sheep and wolves, which one would you rather be? Don't answer, because you may guess wrong. Jesus said, you're the sheep, we're the sheep, Christians are the sheep, I'm sending you out among the wolves. And he wasn't making a dichotomy between you know, friends and foes. He wasn't saying the wolves are our enemies. He, he was making the case that the wolves, their nature is different from the nature of the sheep. The wolves' agenda, the way they see nature, the way they see the world, the way they operate, the way they behave, it's different from sheep. He's drawing a difference. He's drawing a contrast. He's not saying these are our enemies. He's not saying, hey, sheep, go to war against the wolves because that would be crazy. No amount of sheep could win against the wolves. This is like prey and predator. This is Jesus saying, hey, I want you to go out and wade into the depth of the human dilemma with all of its complexities, with all of its difficulties, 
with all of the emotions that are connected to it. And I want you to know, Jesus would say, as he sent those followers out, it's not going to be easy and it's not gonna be comfortable. It's gonna kind of be intimidating and it's gonna be a risk and it's gonna feel dangerous and it's gonna feel you know, like an uphill battle. It's gonna be like sheep going in front of wolves, like prey marching into the den of the predator. Now, this is interesting to know and to not forget. Just a few verses earlier, Jesus refers to these wolves as the harvest field. And he tells his disciples, look up, you see those fields that are ready for harvest? Go, go and harvest those fields. But now Jesus is talking about it in an entirely different way. And he says, I'm sending you out like sheep. You're the prey amongst a predatorial culture and society. There's predatorial values, predatorial worldviews. And it's in opposition to who you are. It's in opposition to how you see the world. It's in opposition to what you believe to be true and what you believe to be right and what you believe to be wrong. And Jesus said, this is gonna, this is gonna be a serious situation. It's gonna feel like a dawning situation. And it's because it is. It's gonna feel almost impossible because that's how difficult it's gonna be. But that's what he said. I said, I'm sending you out. And that's the world they went out into and that's the world they changed. And not only was Jesus saying it to his first followers, but Jesus continued to say it to the subsequent generation of followers in the second century, in the third century, in the fourth century. And they would take their cues from Jesus' words here. And I don't want you to forget here in January of 2023, this is what Jesus is saying to us. And when we contextualize it and when we place it within our own culture and what's happening and what has been happening and what we see may be potentially happening in the future, he says, I'm sending you out into a culture whose moral compass, whose moral compass is upside down. I'm sending you out into a culture that has shifting sands of morality, where the landscape is constantly changing where definitions of right and wrong are always evolving. That's the world I'm sending you out into. I'm sending you out into a culture that thrives on politically polarizing people, that requires political polarization in order to work the way it's designed to work. I'm sending you out into a culture where the pervasive system, the pervasive cultural system and political system, it leverages hate. It leverages hate to motivate people to vote. It leverages hate to get people to write checks to causes. It leverages hate in order to write campaign checks to, campaign, to candidates and to parties. I'm sending you out into a system that values and leverages hate in order to further specific agendas. He says, that's the culture I'm sending you out into. That's the world I'm sending you out into. I'm sending you out into a culture in 2023 that is fundamentally redefining ideas of right and wrong. Ideas that have been around for centuries, for thousands of years. I'm sending you out into a culture that is questioning the very essence and nature of truth. Now I know it's been a long time since you thought about truth, but there's a whole culture out there questioning what is truth and who gets to decide what's true? Is truth absolute? Is truth relative? Is it individual? Can you have your truth and I have my truth and as long as your truth doesn't offend my truth, we're gonna be good? Can you have your own set of ideas that you believe to be true and moral and relative that has absolutely no transcendent anchoring to it whatsoever other than the fact that you want it to be that way and a culture has decided for it to be that way? 
Is there any sense of a transcendent standard that makes truth true for all people all the time in every place? And a whole culture is deciding. It's truth universal? Is it cultural? Is it evolving? What is truth? And we're gonna talk about that next week because it's really important. And especially with the conversations that we're gonna be having over the next couple of weeks. He says, I'm gonna send you into a culture that's starving for purpose, parched for meaning, that's questioning the very essence of what it means to be male, what it means to be female, and more than that, questioning what it means to be human. Is being human any different than being an animal? And for some that seems so silly, it seems so far away, but it's not silly and it's not far away because it's a very will, real, dominating, pervasive discussion happening all around us. Are human beings of any greater value than cats or dogs or monkeys or endangered species? Are, are we any different? Is there such a thing as men and women bearing the image of God that gives us a unique dignity, a unique value among God's created order? Is there anything like that that's true? And if it is, why is it true? And if it's not true, does anything else really matter? He says, that's the culture I'm sending you out into. And so the question begins to be, well, then how do we engage in that kind of culture and how do we engage in that kind of conversation and, and what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do as individual followers of Jesus? What are we supposed to do as moms and dads? What are we supposed to do as teachers? And what are we supposed to do as professionals? And, and, and what, what, what should our approach be? What should our philosophy be? If we're regrouping and rethinking and reconsidering what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus today, then, then we have to start with the question, how do we navigate the cultural, political, and religious clutter in order to effectively be sought and light? Because we're gonna have to effectively navigate the cultural, political, and religious clutter if we're gonna be sought and light. We don't wanna be too much salt because that ruins the steak. We don't wanna be enough salt, you know, too little salt because then it's not as good as it could be. Too much light can blind you. Not enough light, it can't really help you, but just the right amount of light, it can light the way. So how do we figure out how to be just the right amount of salt and just the right amount of, uh, of, of light in a culture that's so full of darkness, in a culture that's so full of decay? How do we do that? And can we do it like we tried to do it 50 years ago? Can we do it the way we tried to do it 20 years ago? And can we even do it the way that we tried to do it 10 years ago or five years ago? Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And then he says, therefore, because of that, he says, you gotta be shrewd as snakes and you gotta be innocent as doves. You gotta help without hurting. I'm sending you out to help, not hurt. Now, I don't know, I, I could be wrong and I reserve the right to be wrong. I, 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 obviously, you already know. I, I, I don't bet perfect and I swing and miss, but, but here's what I think, this is just my opinion and it's mine only. But I think for a long series of decades in our country in the West, there have been so many Christians and so many churches who have the heart and the intent to want to help, but in trying to help, they've actually hurt. Because of the way that they talked about things, the way that they've treated people, the way that they've dealt with issues, the way they've tried to engage in the political process, the way that they've you know, engaged themselves in, the, in their local community or their local church or, or the things that they've decided you know, to argue about or, or to go to you know, uh, engage in a cultural war about. 
See, Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to, you're going out of salt and light, you're going out to help. And in trying to help, be sure not to hurt. Build bridges, don't build barriers. Be wise as a serpent, be hyper-vigilant. Be, be constantly conscious of what you're trying to do and how you need to do it. Be guarded, be calculated, be measured, be careful, be subversive, like a serpent. Serpents are not overly aggressive. And they don't usually take the initiation to attack. Only when they've been attacked or they feel threatened or backed in a corner or, you know, get stepped on. Snakes are not by nature aggressive. And this is Jesus trying to play to a larger stereotype of what we know to be true about serpents. He says, I want you to be wise. I want you to be calculated. I want you to be measured. I want you to be careful. I want you to be subversive. Know when to blend in and know when to stand out. Be wise like a serpent and be harmless and blameless and gentle and disarming and winsome and peaceful like a dove. Be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. That's how I'm sending you out. Practically speaking, know when to speak and know when to be quiet. Know when to answer questions and know when to ask the questions. Learn how to disagree with people without isolating yourself from the people you disagree with. Learn how to share your perspective, your dissenting perspective perhaps, without being combative to the people who disagree with your perspective, while at the same time not trying to virtue, you know, signal your virtue to the people who do agree with you. It's so easy for preachers like me, it's so easy for Christians like us, to say things publicly, to say things in sermons, just to convince everybody else, hey, I'm with you, I'm for you, look how bold I am, look how courageous I am. Applaud me, think I'm strong, think I'm conservative. It's so easy to play that game. It's so easy to throw red meat to the crowd that already agrees with us. But Jesus is saying, you gotta learn how to disagree without isolating yourself, how to share your perspective without being seen combative or morally superior. He says, you gotta be thoughtful, I think. I think that's what he's saying. You gotta be thoughtful, you gotta think about things. You gotta wrestle with some complicated questions every once in a while as you follow me. Because sometimes there's a level of complication to following me in the culture where you may be. Like, here's a question to think about. Should everything immoral be illegal? Should everything that's immoral be illegal? Because not everything that Christians believe you know, to be immoral is not necessarily illegal. Can a Christian in the 21st century, can a faithful follower of Jesus in the 21st century who lives in a democratic republic, can you believe that something is morally wrong, but believe that people can have the right to do that, which you believe is morally wrong? How do we think in terms of moral versus legal? Because a lot of the discussions, when you just tear it apart and get down to the, you know, the irreducible minimum, that has a lot to do with a lot of the conflict that we've been talking about in this country for the last 20 to 30 years. Moral versus legal. A person's right to choose what they do with their own life or how they live their own life versus you know, the ideas of morality and right and wrong. We should wrestle with questions like, at what time does being a good American part ways with being a faithful follower of Jesus? Or is being a good American synonymous with being a faithful follower of Jesus? Can at times you be a quote unquote good American 
but not necessarily a faithful follower of Jesus? Maybe we should wrestle with what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Jesus and know the difference when it begins to part ways with being a quote unquote good American based on whoever has defined it for us. He says, I want you to be wise as serpent and harmless as dove. You gotta think about this stuff. If, If you care about your mission, if you care about engaging, if you care about being salt and light, how can you not think about these things? How can churches not spend time talking about these things? How can we just get up week after week and point our fingers at the White House and point our fingers at Congress and point our fingers at Frankfurt, point our fingers at culture at large, this group, that group, and blame them and make them the enemy, make them the villain, all the while we're sitting over here in our little tribe protecting ourselves, whining about the status of things, but not giving one flippin' thought about maybe, maybe we're not doing this the right way. Maybe we're not talking about things the right way. Maybe we should ask this question, and really this is the backbone for the whole series. This is it. And, and I had to talk about this today in order for us to even be ready to talk about some of the things that we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks. How can we be a people of both deep conviction and wide compassion? How do you maintain your convictions without forfeiting your compassion? And how do you maintain your compassion without forfeiting your convictions? Because that's the pressure of culture. That's the pressure of political culture and social culture. The pressure is that you have to let go of one or the other. If you're gonna be compassionate, you're gonna have to let go of your convictions. Or if you're going to hold on to your convictions, you're going to have to let go of compassion. And it's a false bill of goods because the New Testament presents us with a different way where we don't have to forfeit our convictions nor our compassion. You say, well, how do we do it? Well, the answer, it may seem like a cop-out, but it's not. It's taking a fresh look at Jesus. It's fixing our attention on Jesus. The Apostle John, when, when writing about, you know, Jesus stepping into the world, and showing up, uh, this fisherman from Galilee who decided to become a follower of Jesus, when he wrote the story of Jesus, the biography of Jesus to share with the world, he said this, he said, the word, the logos, God, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In other words, God came near. God came near in the person of Jesus. And later on in the gospel of John, you'll find Jesus saying things like this, me and the father are one. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For people who try to say that Jesus never claimed to be divine, they've never, they've not possibly read the New Testament. Jesus claimed to be God and divine in so many different ways on so many different occasions. Me and the Father are one. Father, will you give me the glory that that I had with you before the world began? Before Abraham was, I am. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, God came near. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. We have seen the glory of God. How did you see the glory of God, John? When we placed our eyes on Jesus, we saw the glory of God. We watched him, we listened to him, we interacted with him. We watched how he interacted with others. We saw how he chose to speak about Rome and how he chose not to speak about Rome. We watched how he chose to speak about the temple and how he chose not to speak about the temple. We saw how he handled the issues of his day. We watched the issues that seemed to stir his spirit up the most. And we had a front row to it. We saw his glory. 
We watched how he navigated the complexities of men and women's lives that he encountered. We watched as he listened to their excruciating stories. And as they told him about the wreckage of their lives, the wreckage that they had invited in and the wreckage that they had forced upon other people. And as he dealt with the complexities of those men and women, it was absolutely eye-opening. It was like we were watching the glory of God. We were watching the glory of the one and only Son of God, the one who was sent from the Father. And as he listened to people tell their stories, we watched his countenance, we studied his body language, we saw how he responded. And John says, the best way I know how to describe what we saw was that he was full of grace and truth. We watched Jesus, John would say, and he had a conviction that was rooted in truth. And he had a compassion that was rooted in grace. John says he was the incarnation of grace and truth in space and time. And if you want to know what grace and truth looks like in space and time, in any space at any time, look at Jesus. Because he is the embodiment and the incarnation of the grace of God and the truth of God in space and time. So put your eyes on him. Because to see Jesus is to see the heart of God opened up and clothed in human nature. To see Jesus is to see our pattern, our example of how we behave, what we believe, how we speak, how we live in the world where we are. He was full of grace and truth, unconditional grace, uncompromised truth. John said, I watched him day in and day out and he refused. He refused to place conditions on grace and he refused to compromise the truth. He was all grace, all truth, all the time. He was grace and truth. Let's all just say that out loud together. Ready, let's go. Grace and truth. How did Jesus do it? Grace and truth. How does he want me to do it? Grace and truth. How am I supposed to parent? How am I supposed to be in my marriage? How am I supposed to be at work? How am I supposed to be in the community? How do I deal in relationships? Grace and truth. It's so applicable to every compartment, every level, every part of our lives. Grace and truth is a paradox. It's a tension and we wanna resolve it, but you can't resolve this tension. You can't separate one from the other. It's not grace or truth, it's grace and truth. They're not individual options based on the moment, based on the person, based on the circumstances. They are a collective pair. Where one goes, the other must go. But let's be honest. Sometimes grace and truth, they feel in opposition to each other. Sometimes we want one to win over the other. In this moment, I want grace to win. In this moment over here with this person, I think truth needs to win out. We think this may be the perfect moment for truth, but not so much grace. And we think over here, this is the perfect moment for grace, but not so much truth. But when it comes to grace and truth, no matter the moment, no matter the person, no matter the circumstance, it's all truth, all grace, all the time. And John says Jesus was both. And John's point is this, that when we lose truth, when we weaken our convictions, when we soften our convictions, when we water down our convictions, we cease to be like Jesus. But at the same time, in the same way, when we lose our compassion, when we restrict our compassion, place conditions on our compassion, we cease 
to be like Jesus. And John says, from all that I can tell, this was the thing that helped Jesus maneuver through the labyrinth of people's stories and people's experiences and people's dilemmas. This grace and truth that John would tell us about and that we can read about in his gospel and all the other gospels, he says, it's messy. If you need clarity, if you need it to be crystal clear, grace and truth, it's a bit messy because Jesus was always walking towards the mess and the wreckage of people's lives because that's what grace and truth does. It jumps into the depth of people's dilemma and people's story and people's wreckage and it's messy and it gets messy fast. And if you don't like messy, if you can't handle that tension where you want it to be clear but it's not so clear, you'll run away from grace and truth and you'll either run just towards truth or just towards grace. At times it's a bit scandalous to be grace and truth. People made assumptions about what Jesus believed all the time and what he didn't believe all the time. People misrepresented Jesus. He, he was guilty by association because of the people that he was willing to be with. But Jesus never seemingly cared about his reputation. And if you decide to embrace grace and truth, if our church continues to try to be grace and truth, people will misrepresent what we believe. People will question what we really think. And people will mischaracterize it and people will accuse but if we're gonna be like Jesus, you know what? I don't, I don't care so much about my reputation. I don't care so much about our reputation. As long as we're trying to do our best to do it the way that Jesus did it. And if Jesus wasn't worried about what self-righteous religious hypocrites thought, I don't want to care either. I don't want us to care either. Because if we care, it will get in the way. At times, it was a bit unfair and inconsistent. Jesus would go to the temple, cleanse the temple, turn over the tables, grab a whip. I mean, it was like wild. Then he'd go to the house of a tax collector, sinner, and prostitutes and be like, pass me another piece of pizza. And it's like, what? It's like, we, wa we, want, it, we want it to be opposite that. It makes more sense for us to be something other than the way it was. It's frustrating because you can't predict what Jesus is gonna do and when he's gonna do it. He doesn't have a policy manual. He doesn't have a protocol list outlined. He has relationships. And I'm just telling you, for whatever it's worth, I'm a church person. I've been in church all my life. I, you know, by all you know, definitions, though I hate the term, I'm a religious person. I'm a church person. I'm a person of faith. And the people who were most threatened and bothered by Jesus were people like us. It was the people who said they loved the scriptures and said they loved God and said they loved people and said that they were spiritual and loved to worship. Those were the people who had the biggest problems with Jesus. And we should not forget that. We should pay attention to that. All the while, the tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners said, he's our friend. How did Jesus do it? He refused to relinquish grace or truth his conviction or his compassion. Grace is undeserved kindness. It's treating someone better than they deserve. It's not treating someone based on their merit or their belief or their creed or any of those things. It's gentle, it's, it's disarming, it's compassionate, it's sensitive, it's thoughtful, it's messy, it's free. It's no strings attached, it requires nothing in return. It's grace, you've heard of a grace period. It's like, you owe the money, but you don't have to pay. You owe the money, but you don't have to pay. That's grace. You owe it, but you don't have to pay. Grace says you're guilty, but we're good. 
Grace is you did it, but I forgive you. Grace is about refusing to give someone what they deserve and withholding maybe what they do deserve. Then there's truth. And truth, truth is just clear. I don't get a say in it. I, I, truth is not determined by opinion poll or a popularity poll or culture or tribe, by country. Truth, truth is just truth. It's not a perception, it's reality. It's not opinions about reality, it's what's real. And truth, truth can hurt, it can be abrasive, it can be offensive at times. Sometimes we don't wanna hear the truth. Sometimes the truth is hard to hear. Truth is a defined standard. It calls the way things are the way they are. It exposes lies in order to set people free. He had grace and truth. And here's our tendency though. And I'm, I'm wrapping it up right here and we're finished. Our tendency, my tendency, followers of Jesus, their tendency is that we struggle and we end up either with unbalanced grace or unbalanced truth. We have, we have problems sometimes. Unbalanced grace says, you know what, you're okay. I'm okay, we're all okay, no big deal. If it's okay with you, if it's right for you, hey, it's good with me. Hey, there's really no boundaries, it really doesn't matter. There's really no important wrongs when it comes to this. As long as you're happy, as long as you're fulfilled, as long as you, know, you think this is what's best for you, then you know, hey, hey, go ahead. I'm not gonna say anything. Uh, unbalanced grace says, hey, don't worry about it. Don't worry about what it may mean for you. Don't worry about what it may mean for anybody else. Unbalanced grace always causes us sooner or later to compromise the truth. It just does. Unbalanced truth says you're wrong, you're a failure. Unbalanced truth ends up venturing into the wrong tone. It offers no hope. It ends up being hateful. It ends up being judgmental and unkind and antagonistic and it's harsh. Unbalanced truth weaponizes the truth, uses the truth as a sword rather than a scalpel and it does more harm than good. And we'll talk more about how to use the truth next week. But unbalanced truth always compromises grace sooner or later, it just does. Jesus was both. Jesus was both. I wonder if it was of any importance that John said it was grace and truth, that he listed grace first. Perhaps it's grace that we're supposed to lead with. Maybe it's grace that gives us the right to be heard to begin with. Maybe grace helps pave the way for the truth to be heard at some point in the future. The scripture never says that it's the truth that leads people to repentance. It's the goodness of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Perhaps we should lead with grace so that we can also speak truth, but speak it in love. I'm gonna close with just a few thoughts to hold on to because you need these, I need these as we talk about what we're gonna talk about the next few weeks. Following Jesus, it requires deep convictions and wide compassion. It requires it. It's not optional, it requires it. We have to remember that when we fail to have compassion rooted in grace, 
and convictions rooted in truth, we fail. We fail. We, we fall short of the example and the pattern that Jesus left us. Here's something else we need to keep in mind for the next few weeks and in the weeks to follow. Loving someone isn't a statement of approval. And if you say that you love someone, you don't have to put a parenthesis after it. You don't have to attach an addendum to it. You don't have to clarify it. Well, I love them, but I'll tell you, just shut up. Do you do that with your kids? God help if you do. Talk about the therapy they're gonna need. Son, I want you to know I love you, but I'm gonna give you five reasons why I'm tempted not to. I'm gonna point out all you're wrong after I tell you I love you so that some third party doesn't think I'm soft. That's really what happens for Christians. We love people, but I'll tell you what. And we thump our chest for our church buddies so that they think we're still in the game with them. Listen, loving someone isn't a statement of approval. Disagreeing with someone isn't a statement of hate. Now you can be hateful in disagreement, but I'm just talking about disagreeing with someone doesn't, doesn't mean you hate them. Doesn't make you a bigot. Doesn't make you devalue them. Doesn't rob them of dignity to disagree with someone. Accepting sinners isn't synonymous with affirming sin. We all know that to be true because we're here today and we're all sinners. Condemning sinners isn't the opposite of condoning sin. If you feel like you have to condemn everyone and everything and every issue in order to convince people you're not condoning it, you need to pay attention to Jesus. And then I'll leave it here. This is what I'm, I want us to regroup and rethink and reconsider and to think about what this looks like in every avenue of our lives. I want us to hold on to both compassion and conviction and refuse to let go of one for the sake of the other. It's not easy to do. To be all grace, all truth, all the time. Whew. But Jesus has given us a pattern. Jesus has given us an example. And whenever we renege on truth or renege on compassion and grace, we have ceased to be like Jesus. So over the next few weeks, as we talk about things like life and gender and truth and so on and so forth, we're gonna talk about what it looks like through the lens of conviction and what it looks like through the lens of compassion. And I don't want you to be scared. I don't want you to be nervous. No reason to be nervous or scared. If you're worried if the other shoe's about to drop or if you're worried about, you know, I don't know what you'd be worried about, but I don't want you to be worried. This is a conversation we need to have. It's a conversation that we should have. Father, help us to be people of grace and truth. Help us to be people who have convictions based on truth and compassion based on grace. And God, help us to never let go of the one for the sake of the other. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.